Lord, we love you. We love that we get to gather and worship you. And we also acknowledge that if we can set aside the cute pictures that we may have seen in Sunday school, this is quite a scary story. And Lord, we ask that you would give us eyes to see what you want us to see, ears to hear what you want us to hear. Help us to believe what you're doing in and through this passage and be transformed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, several years ago, a, uh, a popular pastor in California named Mike Erie recorded a, an interview, really a podcast, in which he discussed his addiction to internet pornography. He shared about it with incredible vulnerability, clarity, and conviction. Uh, anyone who struggles with that addiction yourself uh, or loves someone who does would do well to listen to it. Uh, I, can, I can share a link uh, to it if, if you ask me. Uh, I heard that interview several years ago, but one thing he said in it uh, has stuck with me. When it comes to an addiction like that, not to mention many other things, Mike said, mercy is getting caught, whereas judgment is when the behavior is allowed to continue. Mercy is getting caught. Judgment is when the behavior continues. Often, you know, by the noises that I'm hearing, we think just the opposite. It, it feels like judgment when you get pulled over for speeding and mercy when the officer pulls over the other guy going the same speed as you. The story of Noah's Ark, in, um, which gives us more detail than any story we've heard yet in Genesis presents both judgment and mercy. And it challenges us to rework the ways that we understand judgment and mercy. And that's what we need to focus on in this story. But I, I, I get it. There, the noise in our heads about this story is really loud. We live in the information age. We have, uh, you know, geological records and archaeological records. And we, we have, you know, a, generations of engineers. And, and we look at this story and think, is it plausible? Like, could this possibly have happened? First, like, did a giant worldwide flood really reboot life on earth? And, and if so, could one guy have built this gigantic vessel capable of carrying at least two and sometimes seven pairs of every land animal plus eight people for over a year, just over a year, 370 days? Is it plausible that animals from every continent and region could have somehow come at the right time and that they would have done well together inside of a boat, that, that they could have survived? Is, is it possible that a boat that long made of cypress wood with three stories inside of it could survive on the open seas for a year with the waves tossing it up and down? We get distracted by those questions. 
Now, um, I found that there are some people who have done the math. They've figured out the volume of the boat anyway. Um, you know, a cubit is roughly 18 inches. That's why our translation gives us feet rather than the Hebrew measurement of cubits. Uh, so they take the measurements that are given to Noah and they find that this boat has a volume of over 1.5 million cubic feet. Oh, that's a lot of space, I guess. Um, between the three decks, there's a ground surface of 34,000 square feet, give or take. God's instructions would have required the collection, if it's really global, like 16,000 species to gather. So if you have at least two of each, that's at, you know, at least 32,000 animals. You have really little animals and big animals, average of one square foot per animal. You need 32,000 square feet just to be in there. Well, you got 2,000 square feet to spare, you know, for a hot tub for Noah. Um, or for, you know, people and supplies. But, uh, okay, so maybe by the measurements, it's like plausible for a few days anyway. You know who doesn't care about whether or not it's plausible? The first people who heard this story. The, the, the people, the Israelites who are living in the wilderness, they've just been rescued from Egypt. The ancient Israelites, they're trying to piece together new horizons of reality because their scope of what's possible has just been turned upside down and inside out. They were slaves in Egypt. And then these 10 crazy plagues came and decimated the most powerful kingdom on earth. And then they walked through the middle of a sea on dry land with the water being held up. And then the army followed them in and it crashed back down on them. You know, a giant flood wiping out the wicked people. Interesting. And, and now they're out in the wilderness and every morning they wake up and there's flaky stuff on the ground and they're eating it and it's given them all of the nutrients that they need. And they're, they know where to go in the wilderness because there's a pillar of smoke or fire that is leading them. And no matter how long they go, their sandals don't wear out. Like, their, their scope of what's plausible is totally out of whack. This story wouldn't bother them at all in that sense. In fact, every account of human history that they had heard before they met Yahweh, the God who rescued them, says that somewhere early on in human history, there was a massive flood that restarted the world. All, every account they've heard, that any popular story that, that they would have heard in Egypt or from their neighboring people groups has these stories that there's a flood unleashed by some God that the human race survived because some person built a boat, filled it with animals and weathered the storm. So the story of Noah would not be surprising or troubling to them. They'd be comparing it to this, this, this next picture. Um, this is Atrahasis, and this is an Akkadian myth, 18th century BC, so really earlier than, than they would have gotten the story of Noah. And 
There's Atrahasis' boat. See the big square? It was a giant cube that floated, and he filled it with animals. He built the boat because one, you know, because one of the gods disagreed with the plans of the other gods to wipe out the humans um, because the humans were too noisy, obviously. And so the gods wanted peace and quiet. Or there's this other story, the, this next one. This is this here is the, the epic of Gilgamesh. That's not Gilgamesh on the boat. Gilgamesh is one of the gods um, who's two-thirds god and one-third human, but I digress. Um, one, one of the other gods sneaks info to this guy whose name is Utnapishtim. And there's Utnapishtim on his boat, and you can see he's got supplies and, well, at least one animal on there to start him over. And, you know, so... One of the gods snuck the info to him and, and he instructed him to build a boat. And, and in both of these stories, humanity is saved in spite of most of the gods. The Israelites would not have been bothered by news of a flood. They wouldn't have thought it was mean. They wouldn't have thought, they wouldn't have been worried about the size of the boat or what. They would have been awestruck by the differences in the, from the story that they are now hearing to the, compared to the ones that they heard before. They would have been shocked. Those stories are stories about the gods competing with one another and jealous and, and bothered by the noise and trying to figure out how to control it. And, and there's not a hint in those other stories of justice or mercy anywhere. It's, it's, that's not what those stories are about. The God they're meeting in this story is unique. When people become totally wicked, which in the passage just before this, that every thought and inclination of their hearts is utterly, completely wicked, God is deeply grieved over the situation. His heart is filled with pain about it. That's a weird God to them. At first glance, it would seem clear to us, thinking of judgment and mercy, that the flood is God's judgment, and the ark is his little tiny window of mercy in the middle of that, which means like 99.999% of people and animals received judgment with no mercy, and that, you know, tiny percentage receives mercy. If the earlier statement is true, that every inclination of the thoughts of the people's minds was only evil all the time, well then, that judgment is just, if that's the case. It makes sense. Maybe we need to understand the nature of judgment. I, I don't think we can deny that the flood in the story that we hear is the cause of massive and horrific loss of human life. It boggles my mind that this is one of the most popular children's curriculum stories and that the pictures are so cute. This is horrifying, the death that ensues in this story. Is it is it vindictive on God's part? Is he so angry he can't stand the sight of them anymore? Is that what the Hebrew people would have seen? Is that what we should see? Does God judge the world out of his anger for their violence? Well, I need to show you something really important here. Uh, first of all, the word anger is never in 
the story. This is the first emotion we see of God, and the only emotion we see is his pain, his grief about it. That's the emotion we see. Verses 11 and 12 in, in the passage we read describe the terrible state of the world. It's ruined by the violence that infested the world. So God explains the situation to Noah. It's, this is God's longest speech yet in the Bible. In our translation, the beginning of God's speech, verse 13, has God saying this. Next slide. God said to Noah, I have decided that all living creatures must die, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. All right, that's what we read. Now, I mean, no disrespect to the translators. They know the language way better than me, okay? They know Hebrew better than me. But I find this to be a little bit of a confusing translation. It's not necessarily wrong because Hebrew, just like English, has colloquialisms, common ways of saying things that have different ideas than what the words mean. But I want to give you the, what the more literal translation of this, of this sentence looks like. Here it is. Um, the end of all living creatures has come before my face. That's pretty different than I've decided to destroy them, right? The end of all living creatures has come before my face because the earth is filled with violence because of them. In other words, it's a picture of God surveying his creation. He's seeing everything. He's a God who sees, and he finds that it is ruined beyond despair. It's like when you open the, the package of bread and find that the mold has gone all the way through. You can't make toast with that bread, you guys. You got to throw it away. This is the major method of God's judgment. Judgment is when the destructive behavior is allowed to run its course. Think back to the first example of judgment in the Bible, the Garden of Eden. Just as in the desert for the Israelites, the first listeners to the story, relationship with God is the absolute source of life. You need him with you. When Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit, they, are they have made the decision, con confused by the serpent, that they want to do it apart from God. They want to be independent and equal to God. So what does God do? He gives them what, he, what they want. He banishes them from the garden. It's the same with the flood, and it may not seem like it. God doesn't merely allow people to kill one another off. He floods the earth. That's not like the natural consequence, is it? Well, it's that that's kind of right. But we need to think of floods a little differently. A flood in the Bible is what I'm going to call a literal metaphor, which I know doesn't make sense. A, a literal metaphor. In other words, it's a real thing that has even bigger meaning to it. The waters in Genesis represent chaos and being outside of God's control. Chaos and death. So how did God make life possible in Genesis chapter 1? He separated and put boundaries on the waters, right? He created space in between the waters for life to exist. The violence that people are living in is bringing the same chaos and death back. So 
The flood is an acceleration of the chaos that people have already chosen. The way the language is written, I, you, you may have heard it there in chapter 7, is, is, it's almost like God just takes his hands away from holding the waters back. Like he just kind of steps back and it crashes in. He opens the dam and it floods in. It's an acceleration of the chaos that people have already chosen. Judgment allows behavior to continue and maybe even accelerates it. Mercy is getting caught. And obedience is when we live within God's mercy. Um, an Old Testament scholar named Daniel Hawk on, on the next slide explains it like this. We are left with the sense that God is not so much sending the flood to punish the world as much as facilitating through the flood the inevitable descent into chaos caused by human destructiveness and violence. God ruins an already ruined creation and in so doing creates conditions for a reordering and a renewal to take place. If judgment is the continuation of a destructive behavior and mercy is getting caught, I want to give you a third thing. A way out of judgment into mercy that doesn't involve getting caught, that doesn't involve the confrontation. That way is called confession. Confession. Where we come ourselves before God, identify our sin, and repent. In other words, choose obedience. So, what is the thing lurking in you that threatens to ruin you? What's the mold in your bread that could ruin the goodness God has placed in your life? It may be a desire for control. Dave mentioned that in the confession. Pride, it may be lust, greed, fear of people, political idolatry, I could go on. What is it? It may be mercy to get caught, but maybe we could preempt that confrontation and choose confession if we see God's judgment in even a greater light. God's judgment is in and of itself a revelation of his mercy. Now I'm just messing with the categories, I know. But God's judgment is a revelation of his mercy. After all, think about this. If, if the statements made about creation are true, that it's filled with violence, that every thought and inclination is completely, entirely corrupt, who would want to serve a God who shrugs and looks the other way? Right? Like, what kind of God would that be? Huh? Whatever. Unaffected by the violence, the corruption, the dehumanizing behavior. Who would want to serve a God who isn't grieved when his good creation is denying its very life-producing nature? And in fact, as soon as we recognize God's good judgment, we begin to see that that is mercy. Our whole perspective begins to change. It's a mercy to live within God's good judgments. C.S. Lewis explains it really well in, in The Great Divorce. He writes, there are only 
two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell, no soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. In his love for people, God allows for both possibilities, you guys. Judgment and mercy, and mercy within judgment. Mercy is a life surrendered to God. Judgment is life without him. And he offers that to us freely. Now, Noah is a profound example of a man who says, thy will be done to God. In fact, I think that's one of the biggest things that our passage wants us to catch. Three different times it emphasizes he did it exactly as God commanded him to do it. That's the joy, the full life that C.S. Lewis mentions. It's an invitation to us to consider what does total obedience look like in our life? Is it really burdensome or is there life and joy? down that path. Okay. So if it's about obedience, does this mean it's on us to to therefore choose obedience? It's on us to to choose God's mercy, you know, to, to obey as perfectly as Noah did. After all, how did Noah become such a good guy if everyone else, everyone he knows is totally wicked all the time? How did this one guy do it? Right? Like, he doesn't know any other way. Nothing about his culture sets him up for this. He should be violent. But when he is born, chapter 5 tells us his dad sings a song over him. His song says, This one will bring us comfort from our labor and from the painful toil of our hands because of the ground that the Lord has cursed. What was his dad saying? Noah's dad said, this baby is going to start a new Eden. He's going to reverse the curse. So, Noah has been chosen by God before he was born to be a conduit of mercy and peace in a violence-ruined world so that you and I and the guy who plays his music too loud in the apartment next door could be alive today. That means the ark, no matter what its dimensions, is a miniature Eden. And our guys on Thursday morning, guys, come to Thursday morning Bible study. It's awesome. They they were pointing out, even the way the ark is described sounds just like Genesis chapter 1. Each animal after its kind. It's repeated just like Genesis 1. This is a miniature Eden, a glimpse of life outside of human arrogance, judgment, and violence. That means that our imaginations of the ark are all wrong. It's not a brutal year of keeping kennels clean and, and separating predators from the prey. All right? It's not a year of water and food shortages and, and, and you know, the waves tossed in the boat like wilds. This is a floating Eden, is what it is. It's a place that is remembered and tended by God. 
to borrow from the rest of Scripture, this is, a, this is God's kingdom, a place where lions lay down with lambs, where the oil never runs out, where a few loaves and fish can feed thousands. This is a story about mercy within judgment, and it keeps on preaching. The warning about judgment creates space for mercy. You know, Jesus and his followers, they, they loved this story. Loved may be the wrong word, but they, they referred to this story a lot. In fact, uh, Jesus isn't shy about sort of the scariness of this story. Hi, welcome back, kids. You can find your parents. For Jesus, the flood is a graphic preview of the greater judgment to come, whether or not people pay attention. Listen to what he says about the flood in Luke 17. Jesus says, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so too it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage right up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. Jesus offers the flood as a warning, which is an act of mercy. The religious experts have just asked him when the kingdom is coming. That's why he's talking about the flood. Hey, when's the kingdom coming? And he, he says, look, it's not coming with signs and wonders. In fact, it's already in your midst. You're just not noticing it in the same way that the people in the days of the ark didn't notice the ark. And you know what we tell our kids every time we teach this story? We tell every, every kid's version of this, every Sunday school version of this, says Noah built the ark and everyone mocked him because there was no rain coming. And, and you know, and he needed to, to stick to what God had told him and obey, even though people were making fun of him. That's nowhere in the story. No one makes fun of Noah. Apparently no one even notices that is building a huge boat. They just don't care. It's not a story about sticking to your guns when you're being made fun of. That's important, but that's not here. No, no, no. This is a warning. See the boat. Think about what's happening and realize that God's about to do something really big. That's what Jesus is trying to teach. And Jesus' disciple, Peter, he used the ark to understand the message of Jesus. He, he, in, his, in Peter's second letter, which is called Second Peter, <laughs> Peter consider, considers the catastrophes of Genesis, such as the ark or the demolition of Sodom and Gomorrah, which we'll get to in a while. And he concludes, if, if, if he, God, brought Noah's flood and Sodom's fire, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from their trials and to reserve the unrighteous for punishment of the day of judgment, especially those who indulge their fleshly desires and who despise authority. This is all actually mercy for us, you guys. If you have ears to hear, the warning is exposing the danger of living for yourself, which invites a flood of chaos into your life. But this is more than just a God who merely wipes it clean and starts over. Back in Luke 17, Jesus is saying, the days of Noah are like the days of the Son of Man. He is suggesting that even though they didn't notice the ark and didn't get on board, just like that, they don't notice the Son of Man 
and they don't get on board. Jesus is saying he is the true and better ark. Remember, the first readers of Genesis are the Israelites in the wilderness. And, and their leader is Moses, the guy who led them out of Egypt. And, and he keeps going up on the mountain to receive the law. All right, so he's up on the law, up on the mountain. God's talking to him. God cuts himself short. He says, you got to get back down there. The people have rejected me. They've created an idol, and I want to destroy them. In fact, you can be the new Noah. We'll wipe them all out and start over with you. And Moses says, God, please, please don't, don't wipe them out. Don't, don't start over, you know, even though they're a pain in my neck. Don't start over Please, um, uh, is there another way? In fact, please stay with us. And so God continues giving the law, but what he gives is a set of building instructions. He gives a set of building instructions about this thing, this container, a tent called the tabernacle. And it's so many cubits long and so many cubits wide and so many cubits tall. Any Israelite who's in the wilderness hearing the story of the ark is thinking about the story of this tent, the tabernacle. What was the tabernacle? It was God's promise to be with his people even though they were miserably rebellious. What is the son of man? It is God's, he is God's promise to be with his people even though we are miserably rebellious. The people heard that story about the ark. Then they get the instructions for the tabernacle. You know what they do? They build it exactly to spec. Perfectly. Like, yeah, let's, let's avoid that again. All right. Jesus is the true and better ark. The Noah story is about him. And this really impacted Peter. Peter didn't just use it as a warning about judgment. He also uses it as a promise of mercy. In his first letter, he mentions the ark like this. In the ark, a few, that is eight souls, were delivered through water. And this prefigured baptism, which now saves you, not the washing off of physical dirt, but the pledge of a good conscience to God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who went into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers subject to him. You see, entering the true and better ark, which has been constructed by the perfect obedience of the true and better Noah, is a matter of joining with his family through this weird Christian thing called baptism, where we put water on ourselves. We go through the flood. We go through the death and chaos, and then we rise with Jesus wearing his righteousness, the new ark. He has taken your judgment on himself and offered you his mercy. And now obedience is the joyful act of living in that mercy. Because now he says about you, just what God says about Noah, this one will restore Eden. That's our joy, church to be the conduit of God's work in the world. The message of Jesus offers a better warning than the ark. On the boat, there was no vacancy. Eight people, that's it. 2,000 square feet. 
Everywhere Jesus goes, he's inviting people in. Repent, for the kingdom has come near. Remember, the ark is the kingdom. Now everywhere he, Jesus goes is the kingdom. We find friends in the death of Jesus just as in the ark, a place where judgment and mercy come together as one thing. The consequences of rejecting God are in full bloom. Violence has come full circle. It hasn't just ruined God's creation. It has ruined God on the cross. Beaten, mocked, and crucified. The waters of chaos close over his head so that you and I might enter into his kingdom through him and live. Let's pray. Father, because of the work of your son, Jesus, I'm asking right now by your Holy Spirit that you would remove the fear of judgment that lurks in each heart in this room. That fear of getting caught, that fear of being exposed. Remove it, Lord. Because you have invited us into the light. Lord, Set us free from those things that we're afraid to deal with. Set us free. Some may need to get caught. Some may need to hit rock bottom. But I pray, Lord, that you and your mercy would invite us to confess, receive your grace at the table, and repent. In Jesus' name, amen.